So a, a UK mind, I would describe Oslo as a very, 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 very big town uh, in comparison to, for example, London at what nine or 18 million, depending on how you count it. And then Oslo at 600,000 people. And up until the 1870s, it's a relatively small city. And then suddenly it grows so rapidly in such a short period of time that you end up with kind of the whole of West Oslo, which is, you know, in my mind, kind of lots of villas, some shops and around around the underground stations and stuff. But it doesn't have the kind of the squares and the more kind of European-centric planning. It's more of a kind of a very large sprawl of villas and housing blocks mixed in it, lots of good housing schemes. And then East Oslo, you have the kind of the workers district of, and then these very ambitious post-war housing projects that build out across the rest of East Oslo. It feels like a very big town to me. This is the seventh episode of the Disobedient Buildings podcast, an AHRC-funded project at the University of Oxford. Our focus is on the everyday lives of people living in aging blocks of flats in three European countries, the UK, Romania and Norway. My name is Anna Ulrike Andersen and today I take you back to Oslo, where I speak with Tom Davies from the Oslo School of Architecture and Design, talking about the preservation of post-war architecture. By talking about the history of place and with people and about the connections that they have, their different stories and narratives, you start to break out of that singular narrative that can be quite negative. The accepted narrative on post-war housing up until a few years ago was not the most positive. And it's by doing that that we're starting to view communities as diverse groups of people as they are in other areas. What were these ideals then when when these buildings were built post-war? The welfare state and the welfare ideas? The welfare state, the main agenda, which is possibly even stronger in Norway because of everything that happened in in the Second World War, so the total devastation of large parts of the country and the pressing need before that to improve housing, same as in the UK, that what was regarded as slum housing, that there's a very strong drive, a very socialist drive straight after the war in both countries to just provide housing quickly. And you get a very strong group uh, of architects and planners in Norway, effectively just providing new areas. And then within that, the kind of the brutalist thing, which brutalism is a really a tricky term and not an easy one to pin down. But a lot of that comes from architects who were starting to work with the idea of designing for community in that period and the idea of the rise of the individual. So what starts to come in this kind of socialist welfare housing, which is more about kind of good standard, really good good standard interiors and layouts and high quality buildings for everybody as quickly as possible to improve housing conditions. And then a new direction that emerges in that, looking for the individual and also the community. It's a very complex period in the way that develops, basically, that you get that socialist provision at the beginning, diversification and individualism. And then you start to see things like like the Grand Ensembles of the 1960s, where it'd be housing with all the other amenities and wonderful things all mixed in together. What I find so intriguing as well about your work is that it is uh, that comparison between the UK and Norway, which obviously we are very interested in. In as well, and I wonder then how. What did you 
some what, what did you find out then about this the, the difference between the UK and Norway when it comes to these buildings and the policies the housing models are totally different in the UK councils built built housing and then tenants basically lease it from the council and then from the 1980s you have the right to buy scheme which then passes things over into private ownership to cut a very long story short uh, in Norway uh, Ubos which is the kind of the main state house builder uh, what was a state house builder became a housing agency in 1939 that Jakob Christie Cheerland who's one of the two founders set up a model where it would be subsidized ownership housing So they were building large housing complexes with collective living models where people were then effectively, they bought housing at subsidised prices, which was, which was allocated through auctions. When your housing is owned by somebody else, so either the council uh, in the UK cases, you have leaseholders and you have tenants, there's more of an exposure for the residents as a whole than when everybody owns their property. And so the Boritslag or collective li- one of the, the collective living model that was set up in Norway effectively starts in the 30s with, yeah, with a shift that goes on when Ubos is created, uh, that they moved from what was more akin to the UK system of the state building and leasing out housing to ownership, an ownership-based model, that that anchors all the people in the property as owning an individual flat And, you're, and there are conditions uh, in the model where you can't own more than one unit. So it's impossible to speculate and buy up the whole building. And when you're talking about large suburbs where there are, it could be, I don't know, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred units and stuff, then yeah, it makes redevelopment very, very difficult in terms of speculative buy-up and redevelopment of blocks. It's really interesting to see how how these very, you know, these very different systems come to play. I mean, both in in what is built and how that is being built, but also when it comes to, you know, preservation and, and maintenance. That's something I've been looking at quite a lot, actually, because obviously you have this thing that when the council owns your building, it's befallen to the council to do maintenance and supply things. But then with the, with the ownership model, if it's Boritslag where you own the right to live in a building, but you don't own the building, you own it collectively as a group, that you need to have good competence within the committee, that, I know, for example, the residence committee, that you need to have enough people with skills to tackle things like planning issues, maintenance. With these brutalist buildings, the buildings that are built in the 50s, 60s and, and 70s, even the buildings in the 80s are actually aging, you know, so it's um, how long a, a building lives and how much maintenance does come with them. But the thing with the kind of the idea of aging post-war architecture, I think a lot of the challenges with it are, same as any buildings, are that the the management models or the the housing models that it's built on, that, for example, if you've got a council that owns your building who largely don't have any money uh, or aren't interested in maintaining, maintaining properties, then things don't get done for long periods of time and then you get the kind of emergency maintenance and that's that simple fact that councils will do bits and pieces sometimes they do it when they have sometimes they do things in advance 
but often it's a kind of crisis firefighting. Uh, I know the building has been left to part of the building has been left too long, and then they come in when they have to and do what they've got money for. And the same thing on the other side of it, when you've got residence committees trying to organise maintaining their own buildings that, to be honest, our residence committee here haven't done anything for quite a few years, which is why we've got a lot to do now. So I wouldn't draw a distinction between newer buildings and older buildings necessarily in terms of their longevity. It's more the models and the way they're managed that determines you know, what state they're in. It's an incredibly quite a complicated picture. The core, a core part of the PhD is looking at what kind of strategies can we have for protecting post-war housing. So when you're talking about trying to conserve and manage the heritage significance of you know, places that are living communities, newer buildings, um, and the idea that they, they need to have flexibility to change use, update things, improve. We're thinking more in terms of strategic heritage protection rather than kind of saying okay we need to make sure that no materials change you're looking more at the essence of the place so what what are the reasons that it was built what was the aim in terms of particularly these ones that are very community focused so there's an idea to create spaces that work for people and facilitate the different aspects of living from kind of private life to public life and then how that's developed over time and then how the communities have adopted them over time so the architects and planners often had quite quite clear ideas about this space will be used for this and you know, this space will be this and good design in them often allowed for flexibility in that in the design. What's critical in the way that communities have adopted them while they've lived there is that those, those intentions get sub- subverted, spaces get used differently. That's where it needs to be from a community lens, basically, that you need to be talking to the community about their experience of the buildings, how they how they relate to them. And then by talking about the origins of them and their planning intentions and what the ideas of the design were. So that gives you that kind of evolution of those, those intentions and how they t- how they change through, through adoption and how we can then think about moving them further. You were talking about how we do we do adapt and and how people who who live in the buildings might think very differently about the original plans than the architect might have done. There's this one photograph, and this is taken from the living room towards the west of Oslo, and you see a very large uh, windows, some plants in the, the windowsill, and then a door that opens up to the, the balcony. And then in the balcony uh, railing, you have glass tiles, And the original design for this block was that railing uh, on the balconies was concrete. So you didn't have the the same light coming through into the balcony and into the the living room. And this was changed, I think, in the 90s, but at least it was changed, you know, the blocks were built in the 60s. So for a very long time, they had the concrete balconies, but then when they needed to update them, the 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 board in the cooperative decided that they wanted more light in and they did want more the glass instead of the concrete. And I think, you know, that is a, a nice example of exactly what you're saying, that, you know, these buildings, they do change. It's that idea of managing the changes that you're making, that it becomes a consensus-based thing, basically. Or it is a consensus-based thing. And then if you're building buildings that are built for community, 
it makes sense to me that you know communities should be making those decisions in terms of updates and changes and improvements but you temper it by having the the historic understanding of the buildings and sense of place the way that you know in older areas of cities that people who live in rude look at the nice wooden old wooden house area in oslo that has a very strong identity and a very strong character that people who live there are very aware of the history of their area so by kind of promoting that story with post-war housing where you talk about the importance of this project didn't just happen overnight people sat and planned it and went what's the best we can do So we asked also people to write us letters and uh, answering the questions, what are you worried about? There's a letter that I received from one of, of the participants who's describing being worried about, you know, that the city's changing. Where are the, the population that are over 50 years old in Oslo? You know, and he's answering it saying, you know, yeah, they all live outside of Oslo. And I, I, I think it's also something interesting about the idea of uh, these post-war buildings that were built, some of them in the 60s. And although you do have habitants who have lived in the buildings since then, uh, there are fewer and fewer or how, you know, when it comes to communities and, and protecting communities, then also obviously uh, making sure it is uh, an area that welcomes all ages. And then there's a few things that the way the housing was built in, and you know, post-war housing was built, particularly in East Oslo, you have all these suburban schemes which are basically providing upgraded, much better housing. London and other UK cities don't have that. Their post-war housing is about repairing bits of the city and it's kind of more of a, an urban dentistry of kind of going in and kind of knocking down an area and redeveloping one project within an area and then it connects more to the neighbouring areas. Whereas Oslo is more kind of, we've got all this expanse to build in, we'll build new projects, move people out here, then we'll knock down their houses and rebuild them and then that doesn't happen and you end up with the kind of the gap or the hiatus of the 70s while the city renewal program gets moving and they start to get that in and community take up the work rude looker gets developed and other areas gets developed into a program of 19th century block renewal and shifting over to collective ownership models since he was still here stayed other people moved in the housing wasn't as attractive as the new high standard housing out in the suburbs it's those challenges of trying to you know you want to improve conditions in an area and you know regenerate areas but then you don't want to gentrify it you don't want to tip it over into you know into what we're seeing a lot in this area at the moment where it becomes we've got a very high turnover of residents in our building the other buildings in the area that people move in do a few years meet partners have one child or whatever then relocate somewhere much bigger what's going on with post-war housing at the moment that we've gone through a period where there was the kind of Brutalism is big, bad concrete and, you know, kind of poor quality prefab construction and things. There's been a lot of, uh, I'd say, a lot of mistruths have been kind of reevaluated in the last 10, 15 years or so. And there's also with the kind of high, high profile cases of communities fighting redevelopment and things like that in London. Yeah, we're getting better at recognising the kind of the diversity and complexity of communities in post-war, post-war housing. 
But then I suppose that's probably the same with every epoch, isn't it? That every period of housing and redevelop and new development, that there's a period where that phase of development and the people who live in it, you know, the communities in it, are then tested. It's tested a bit in kind of does it fit where does it fit into our narrative, in, into our collective narrative from before? Make sure that a lot of things that are valuable are better understood before they're lost. Thank you for listening to the Disobedient Buildings podcast, edited by myself and produced by Jack Soper. If you want to hear more, go to our website, www.disobedientbuildings.com, or search for a podcast where you normally find your podcasts. In the next episode, Inge Daniels, Gabriela, Nicolescu, and myself offer some concluding remarks on our first series of the podcast for the Disobedient Buildings project. First up, the welfare state. <laughs>